Hi, and good morning. Today we're here with Christine Spagnoli, a partner of the firm of uh, Green, Burlett & Wheeler. Christine graduated from Loyola Law School after attended UCLA undergrad and spent some time in the political arena. She specializes in trials of product liability and other catastrophic injured cases. It's great to have you here today, Christine. It's been a while, but thanks for coming. Thanks, Brian. Happy to be here. So I'd like to start off talking about, just tell us generally, what does your practice consist of and what kind of things are you doing on a day-to-day basis? Well, uh, for the past 20 years or so, I've focused primarily on cars and tires, automotive products, liability, defects, uh, catastrophic injury cases, uh, mostly involving fuel systems, fires, tire failures, rollovers, crashworthiness, those kind of cases. And in those kind of cases, you're suing primarily the manufacturer, distributor, somebody involved in the chain of these various products. Right. Or General Motors, Chrysler. Small, small companies. <laughs> and I would assume that those companies have pretty good lawyers that know what they're doing in defending this case. What's your experience? Well, typically, uh, you see the same law firms. It, it's repeat business for them, and they have specialties. They have firms that specialize in the fire cases. They have firms that specialize in tires. And many of the lawyers on the other side are also engineers. And that creates a bigger challenge because you really have to know the technical issues in these cases in order to get around the defenses and understand why product failed or how it could be designed better. Yeah, that, that's a great idea. Let's, let's talk about that. What are the common defenses, no matter what the product liability cases, is that you see consistently the defendants raising? Well, the one that's probably the, the biggest hurdle for most uh, automotive product liability cases, and it's even true in, in medical devices and drugs, is that there's a government standard that uh, sets a bar and the manufacturer claims, well, we passed the government test, so we must be safe. Well, how, how, how do we know they passed the test? What's done? Well, in the, in the auto arena in particular, um, there are Fuel System Safety Standards, or Federal Motor Vehicle Safety Standards, FMVSS, and those are performance requirements. So the government says in order to sell your truck, you have to prove that the gas tank isn't going to leak in a 30-mile-an-hour rear-end crash. And in order to do that, you have to run a test. So the manufacturers take the performance requirements, and they run the tests internally. And then somebody from the supervising government agency watching this going on? Never. No. How do we know that what they're reporting is Well, this is the way that we attack the, the reliability of these tests is that manufacturers do what's called self-certification. They run their tests, and when they think they've complied and they meet the standard, they sign off to the government and say, oh, we've met the standard, we've run the tests. They don't have to turn over the tests. They don't have to prove it. The government doesn't test the vehicles themselves, except for in a very few exceptions. There's, there are some tests that the government runs, but it's more of a sample. But they, they're not, they don't have a staff of engineers and test runners and right. people reviewing this data at the government. Very, very, very limited staff at the National Highway Transportation Safety Administration, NHTSA, we call it. They, I, they can't compete. And yeah, and I'd also think in light of all the budget cuts we continue to see, putting more vigilance in supervision of 
auto manufacturers are probably not high on the list. It's very low on the list, and particularly in this in this administration, there's not even a NHTSA administrator right now. There's no boss. So there's nobody in Washington. There's no, no one guarding guarding this case. Right, right. And part of the other problem is too, in in over the last thirty or forty years, people who go who worked in the the government as a regulator. They leave, it's a revolving door. They leave and go to work for the manufacturers. So that there's a hot, lot of crossover. And so really the agency, the federal agency has been very friendly to the manufacturers. So we can't really count on the government to catch problems when they occur. Well, for example, the standards, the FMVSS standards, you mentioned the fuel system uh, standard 209. When was the last time that was changed? Well, um, there was a period of time that the, all the standards came about in the early 70s. And for 30 plus years, most of them didn't get changed. Recently, well, when I say recently, the Ford Firestone uh, example or the calamity of all those people who died and were injured because of failed tires on Ford Explorers, that led to Congress actually telling the government, you have to update the standards, at least in the tire world. And so that did happen. And in the tire arena, there was a new standard in 2007. There hadn't been an update for since the about? 70s. In the fuel system, we finally saw an upgrade in the mid-2000s, which because of that, we're not seeing as many fuel-fed fires when cars are in crashes. So uh, the, the government standards really lag the, the innovation in the industry. The real world. Correct. Yeah. Okay. So I want to talk a little bit about you recently were uh, in a trial in Florida. Right. Uh, you're a California lawyer, but you went to Florida. I believe it was in a 15 pasture van. I know you've done many of those cases. Right. So let, let's use that as a backdrop. Sure. So, okay. First question. Going out of town to do a trial, what is that like? What is that experience? You don't have your office, you're not at home, you're living away from home, you're probably not able to come home that often during the trial being it's five or six hour flight away. What, what is that like? Well, it, <laughs> it's a challenge, but um, I, in the Florida case, I was there a month. I did not come home, it was too, hard to leave court, go catch a flight and come back and literally have one day at home. So I stayed there. I was in a nice motel basically <laughs> in Newport Ritchie, Florida, which is not, uh, you know, it's not, uh, it's not Miami. It, there wasn't a lot happening in Newport Ritchie. It was a very um, uh, suburban community on the east coast of Florida in uh, north of Tampa. And spending a, a month there, um, you know, you, you get tired of being in the same room. You go from the hotel to the courthouse and back, and that's pretty it's much the it. Same food, you get tired yeah, of the food and the people. Right. But, but, but I had a good support team. I, I was working with a law firm that is very, um, uh, it's, it was a big firm. They had a lot of resources. They put a lot of good people in it. We had a war room set up in the hotel. I've heard that. Too. What is a war room? <laughs> it, it's our meeting place it's where the boxes are with all the exhibits it's where the printers are it's where the computers, computers are. are it's where the staplers are it's where you go Paper to books, you know get food, put snacks, your little package together for snacks. the next day and make sure that your powerpoint works your snacks, and your snacks your, your oh yeah 
we had our, you know, we had our beverages and our snacks and we had the pizza delivered there and met with experts. It's somewhere that you, you know, hopefully you can have some privacy and kind of like and, your office at the location. Right. And have strategy sessions with the other so, lawyers. So this trial took approximately one month. Right. And it was against, uh, was against Ford? It was against Ford Motor Company and the First Baptist Church of Newport Ritchie, which was the owner of the van. And I assume that Ford was probably trying to say that the church did some things that they shouldn't have done. Well, actually, quite interestingly, Ford, Ford was going for the home run. It's all, it was all our client's fault and nobody else's fault. It wasn't the van's fault. It wasn't the church's fault. Dry rare. No, our client was a passenger. She was uh, a church volunteer who was taking a group of kids to go on a church retreat and was a passenger in the church van. She and the other folks got in at five in the morning, and when she got in her seat, she went to put her seatbelt on, and her buckle was not on the seat because the buckles fall through the cracks in those seats. So she didn't have a seatbelt buckle. She was sitting in the van asleep and the driver of the van uh, had experienced a tread separation on a tire, lost control, the van rolled over and she was ejected. And so Ford said, gee, if she'd only had her seatbelt on, she would have lived and we wouldn't be here. And did the other people get insured that had seatbelts on? Um, there was nobody wearing a seatbelt except for one of the kids. And there was, the driver was not wearing a seatbelt. He was very heavy and it didn't fit. And he was ejected and killed as well. And his case had settled. Everybody else had resolved their cases. There were other injuries of kids primarily who'd been ejected. Uh, but this case, Ford chose to take to trial and the church took to trial because they felt that they had a clean defense on the no seatbelt. And in Florida, comparative negligence is a, what, a pure comparative state? No, it's a percentage of fault. So they pay their share of fault plus any economic damages. So, so similar to California? Very similar, very similar. Okay. So what were the big defenses? Just that you didn't wear your seatbelt and you're required by law to do that? And if you had, you wouldn't have been earned? Well, actually in Florida, she was since she was a passenger, the law did not require her to wear a seatbelt. But the real, the, well, we made the case... They're yeah. gonna think you gotta have your seat. Sure. Right? And that was when we were picking the jury. That was one of the two issues that primarily got people thrown off for cause because most in Florida they have a, a pretty low bar to to say that someone should be off because they have a preconceived idea that would not make them a fair juror. And in the case of the seatbelt, many people raised their hand and said, I, I will have already decided the case. If she wasn't wearing a seatbelt, it's her fault. So we, we cleared a lot of those people out. So you just brought it right out and dressed it in front with the Absolutely. Jurors. Could you find a defect in a vehicle if you heard the person bringing the case wasn't wearing their seatbelt? Right. Some people said, no way. Right. And no seatbelt, end of story. Right. And then we made the actual availability of the seatbelt one of the defect issues in the case because the way these Ford vans were designed right up until the last few years, the benches in the 15 passenger vans come out so that you can make it a cargo van. They're trying to do a two for one deal. And when you take out the seats, the belts come with it. The buckles that are attached to the legs of the seat come with it. So there's a little hole that the belts buckles thread through. And when they fall through, someone gets in, it's not there. It's not readily available. So you were able to work into your case. Uh, part of the theory 
which would excuse the fact that your client was one. Right. And it was also our theory against the church because the church had a safety supervisor who was supposed to make sure that when the van left the parking lot, all the seatbelts were functioning. And he told us and said, told the jury that they can't, they were falling through all the time. So he wasn't really doing what They weren't doing their job. So it sounded like you got a pretty good case against the church, harder case against Ford. What did you do, your team, pre-trial to figure out what, what you needed to do to sway the jurors? What did you do? Well, one of the interesting things we did is because we knew that Ford was going to make the case about the seatbelt, we, we really started out thinking, well, in, in many cases, seatbelts don't protect people in rollovers. And so we were going to attack the seatbelt defense by saying, you, Ford, you can't prove she would have lived because in rollovers, many people wearing seatbelts get ejected or partially ejected anyway. We decided to change our focus and make the fact that the belt wasn't available an issue for Ford too. And we took their biomechanic expert's deposition, and he conveyed the opinion that if she had been wearing her seatbelt, she would have lived. We adopted his testimony. We got rid of our own expert, and we played the videotape of the defense biomechanic saying if only she'd had her seatbelt on, she would have lived. That became our theory. She needed her seatbelt, and you didn't give her a seatbelt. So, Ford, you're partially responsible. Well, you took what they thought was the biggest strength in their case and you made it part of your theory in the case we adopted it Is we that adopted their theory that you commonly do try to embrace or adopt some of the problems in your case it, absolutely it's a great way to diffuse issues to basically stand up and say you know we agree if you'd only done x this person would be still be here and that becomes your theory of the case it's kind of hard for them to fight it when they're saying they're agreeing with you how easy was it for them to make the seatbelts available? That became the focus. We literally had a zip tie example to zip tie the buckles to the seats. It's simple to give her a seatbelt. also the church not making sure that all the safety equipment was available. Certainly they were negligent. Correct. Yeah. Okay. So what about mock trials or focus groups? Do you commonly do things like that? Absolutely. Well, we do do, do focus do groups. Why, why do you like well, it, it does a couple of things. Number one, I like having the trial run. I like having the, the opportunity to get up and deliver your opening or present evidence to get comfortable with doing it so that you're not for the first time talking to a jury about your case and kind of stumbling over what is it I want to say here and there. And you, you can hear the feedback that lets you adjust um, you know, what's the strong points, what's the weak points. Doing a focus group, it, it, and particularly getting a couple of them done, is that you just hear from people who are coming up with ideas that you maybe never thought of. Well, isn't it true, generally speaking, that when you're so engrossed as a lawyer working up the case, preparing the case for trial, that it's hard to not maintain that focus and see everything else that's out there it is and the other thing is too when you do a focus group if you do it right you present yourself a challenge you either do the defense or you have somebody really good do it so that it's not a, a lay down where you're gonna you know you're gonna win you want to make it as hard as you can to see where your fault 
problems are. Or your weaknesses are, shore them up. So tell right. us, so what happened? How did the case turn out? Well, it, it turned out great. Um, the jurors were unanimous. We had, the, aside from the seatbelt, we said that the van itself was defective because it went out of control too easily when you have a, a rear tire failure because the long wheelbase and the, the extra weight in the rear makes it unstable. So the jury found uh, in our, our client's favor, 31% um, to Ford, 28% to the church, and 23% to the decedent, and some amount on the, the tire company, and the verdict was $26 million. So the so, combined offers in the case before trial between Ford and the church were less than a million dollars. So, so it turned out they okay. bet bad. <laughs> they made the wrong call. And it was worth the long stay. You must have been happy to get home. Very happy to get it, home. Was it humid down there in Florida? Oh, uh, we were there in February, so it wasn't so bad. It was a good time to be in Florida. So quite quite pleased with the results. Yeah. Let, let me summarize and let you tell us. What do, would you advise young lawyers that want to practice in the area that you do a product liability, catastrophic injury type case? What should they do to, to ready themselves for that ta task? Well, for I, I think the one thing that particularly in doing the products liability stuff is you can't be afraid of the math and the engineering. You have to get your head wrapped around the idea that you have to understand what delta V is and forces are that are involved in collisions, and you can't be afraid of it. And I, particularly for young women lawyers, I think you have an advantage because uh, it's older male engineers for the most part that you're facing in these cases, or older male lawyers, and they tend to think that women don't understand these things. And for me, I have found that by being underestimated and not uh, really given credit for understanding the engineering that you can get a lot more out of these witnesses than if they know you're an engineer and you can figure it out. You don't need to be an engineer, but you need to grasp the concepts and be able to explain them to people in a way that makes sense. Well, it's one of the ways you do it by having your expert educator treat you or teach you. You, absolutely. You got you got to ask what you may think sound like dumb questions in order to make sure you're not stepping into a problem by thinking you've got an answer that helps you and it turns out it doesn't. Well, thank you for being here. It's been a treat to hear about you and all your success and how to handle these tough, as I would say, cases against some big defendants and making them a safer place for all of us. So thanks so much. Thanks, for Brian, being here. for having me. Appreciate yeah. it.